Let's pray together. Father God, we come, this is our posture. Our hands are out and we are coming believing that you're in this room, hoping, God, longing that it's true. That you would be our God who would come and speak to us and encourage us about life and our journey with you. So our hands are out and our palms are up as a symbol that we long for you to pour out from heaven and bring the truth and the encouragement and the equipping that I need. So speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. If that's your prayer, say amen. Amen. So yeah, marriage, it's really kind of a crazy thing if you think about it, that we're being uh, given this institution by God that two people from two completely different backgrounds with two different personalities, two different kinds of quirks, two different sets of strengths and weaknesses, two different sets of character issues, two different sets of baggage that we bring from generations of our family of origins. And then we say, you live together every day and spend the rest of your life together, work it out. Like that is an awesome idea. Marriage is an insane proposal. And we are going to need to lean in to how it is that we can strengthen our marriages. So we want to talk for the next couple of weeks about marriages that rock. Uh, this week and then part two next week, Art's going to talk about it. We want to talk about marriages that rock. Marriages that rock. And what are marriages that rock? Are marriages uh, that rock perfect marriages? Or no, that's never happened. Marriages that are marriages that rock marriages without conflict. That never happens. Are they, are they, what are, what's a marriage that rocks? Well, from my perspective, a marriage that rocks is a marriage that is rock solid, a marriage that's built on a, a rock solid foundation, that there's some unshakableness to the principles that it's built on. In 1978, I, was, uh, I, I went to live in Napa where my dad had moved. I was 16 years old and I went to build my dad's house, work on the crew that was building this custom house that they were building. And it was like 4,500 square feet and it was a ranch style. So it was this huge sort of sprawling, you know, sort of uh, uh, footprint of a, of a house. And I was super excited. I was going to get to be a construction guy and I was 16 and I thought, man, I built a tree for it. I know what I'm doing. And so I'm going to work on this crew. So I got my belt. Have you ever seen there's nothing more rookie-ish than a, a guy with a new construction belt, right? <laughs> Jeff, you, right? So uh, I had my belt and I had my framing hammer on it and I had my, you know, my little construction pencil and I had my tape measure and I was ready to go. So I go to show up for work, but it turns out we couldn't start working because the soil engineers had to spend weeks they were building on a hillside and they had to make sure that this was an okay place to build a house. So the soil engineer spent all this time trying to figure out whether or not it was going to be stable and under what conditions and should they grant the permits and all that. And finally, when that happened, I thought, all right, we're ready to go. The bulldozers showed up and had to kind of create a big flat spot on this hillside and dug out all the hill. And then I thought, all right, now we're ready to go. And then except then the bulldozers had to compact the lot and do soil compaction or whatever they had to do. And they worked on that for all this time. So with the, the rest of the five or six weeks or whatever I had in my summer, I'm like, let's go. I'm going to swing a hammer. Well, it turns out they brought a backhoe in. They dug a big old trench around the footprint and a few in the middle of this giant uh, house that was going to get built. And then they delivered about 50 pallets of these. And I spent the next six weeks hauling with my little bell work belt on hauling these up the 150 feet from the road to where the dude was, you know, stacking them with the mud and putting them together. Then I'd go back down, I'd get some more and I'd bring it up. And when we got enough bricks to where he needed them, then 
I'd go back down to the cement mixer and I'd mix some more mud, some more hod, and I would push the wheelbarrow up the hill into the deal. This, friends, I wanted to build a house, had my hammer out, and I spent the summer doing this. <laughs> and then I went back to school. <laughs> that was it. That's what I got to do. And in my frustration of all of that, you know, literally, did not swing one hammer. Didn't nail one nail in an entire summer. When in my frustration about it, the contractor said, listen, whatever you're going to build here is only going to be as solid as the bricks you're putting into that foundation. And I was stupid enough to recognize that that is a word of wisdom. And so I want to talk a little bit about marriage because truthfully, friends, whatever we build is only as strong as the bricks we use to build the foundation. Marriages that rock are built on rock-solid foundations. Jesus said as much in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said this. He had this story. He said, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You remember this teaching? Everyone who hears these words of mine puts them into practice. So everybody who, wait, go back. Everybody who hears the words, Jesus is truth. Jesus is wisdom. Everyone who hears what God has to say and then does what? Puts them into practice. So hearing God's truth and living out of God's truth is like somebody who builds their house on the rock. And then the text goes on to say, Jesus' story says, the rains come down and the winds blow and they beat against the house. The streams rose and beat against the house. But the house didn't fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Jesus went on, actually, the rest of the teaching is, which I don't have on the screen, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a person who built their house on sand. You know the story. Then the streams rose, the rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. And the scripture says, and it fell with a tremendous crash. It wasn't built on the rock. We want to seek God's heart, God's teaching God's principles, rock solid principles for building a marriage. So in the few minutes that follow, sort of a shotgun approach to some things that just a pastoral heart of mine, Art's gonna preach on some other things next week, but just a few things, as much time as I have, to talk about what are some of the foundational bricks, some of the principles upon which we build a marriage. And I hope this is strengthening and encouraging to you. This is not, I hope, this is, I hope you're not like, oh man, because everybody knows how hard marriage is and they kind of know instinctively how not well we're kind of doing in marriage. Like everybody knows that. And so I hope you don't, you're not sitting sideways, think I'm going to blast you. I want this to be encouraging. And if you're not married yet, then this is going to be hopeful and take some notes. And if you've been married and you're suffering the heartbreak of a broken marriage, then this is part of the healing and part of an understanding and part of your investment and love in people's lives who are married. But some pastoral foundational truths to encourage and strengthen us for a marriage that rocks. Here we go. You ready? Here's what I think is going to happen too. I think at the end, you're just going to go, oh, that one thing right there, that was God's thing for me. So be looking for that and then take that home. And live that out by the grace and the strength of God. But here's some, here's some uh, encouragement. Here's some principles. Number one, marriages that rock, say I'm sorry. Yes, you came to church for that unbelievable wisdom. <laughs> marriages that rock, say I'm sorry. Here's the funny thing. 
There is a catchphrase that came out in the 70s. It, said, it, was, it was this, love means, do you know it? Never having to say you're sorry. Does anybody know the movie that came from? Yes, Love Story, worst movie ever. It won like awards. You go back and look at a movie that was 45 years ago and you think, did we like this? What was the matter with me? Love Story, 1970, love means never having to say you're sorry. And it became a catchphrase, it was everywhere. In fact, there's a Simpsons episode from not too long ago where the Simpsons family's sitting on the couch and they're watching the movie and that line comes up and Lisa Simpson goes, what? No, it doesn't, what is that? That's crazy. When you go on YouTube and you look, because I wanted to go see the, the old uh, clip, I went on YouTube and looked at the, the, uh, the woman in the, in the story. Who's the actress who does that? Allie McGraw. Yeah, so she goes, you know, love means never. You read the, 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 the comments down below it. The only comment on the one YouTube posting that I saw is one person that said, I can't even deal. That's the stupidest advice ever. That's what it said. It's the one internet comment. Marriages that rock say, I'm sorry. It's the opposite is true that love means never having to say you're sorry. The scriptures say, Paul said to a letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, he said, godly sorrow, being sorry by God's truth and God's leading, godly sorrow brings repentance. That means turning around. So let me paraphrase it for you. Being sorry according to how God's leading you, being sorry for something, leads to a turnaround. And that brings life and leaves no regrets, it says. Being sorry is absolutely a God thing. It's absolutely a Jesus thing. We're told that we're gonna bear with each other and forgive each other. And if we have grievances against one another, we're gonna forgive as the Lord forgave. And we're gonna be able to, to initiate that by saying, I'm sorry, why? Why would it be so powerful to be people who say, I'm sorry in a marriage? And it just simply has to be because it leads us right away to the humility that's required to develop intimacy. There's a drawing together when somebody says, I'm sorry. There's a bringing together. You think about the humility that it takes to simply say, I'm a mess and I need your grace. I need you to bear with me. I need you to forgive me. There's no explaining me. There's no excusing me. I'm just a mess and I need you to embrace me in that mess. Do you see how there's a coming together there? That should be part of your daily ritual maybe. You just turn to your spouse if you're married every day and just go, I'm a mess and I need you to embrace me in that. There's a, there's a drawing. Jesus, what did Jesus say about living in truth? He said, the truth will, do you know that phrase? The truth will set you free. There's a freedom that comes from saying, this is who I am. And I faked you out for a while while I was dating. Not so long. I thought I was faking you for longer, but you're smarter than that. Faked you out for a while. Kind of had some of you were still a little bit ignorant when we got engaged. Got married, you still didn't know everything there was to know. There ain't no hiding it now. I'm a mess. And I need you to embrace me in that. I'm sorry for what I did today, for what I'm going to do today. Marriages that rock say, I'm sorry. There's a humility. There's a drawing together for, for the tr in, the, in that truth that just says, this is who I am. And isn't it intimate? And isn't it, you see how it would draw one into intimate relationship to say, you know, I'd rather be right with you than to be right. Pretend I'm right or pretend that I'm not wrong. I'd rather be right with you. Who of us, when somebody says, I'm sorry, I blew it. I let you down. Would you forgive me? Because I'd rather be right 
with you than to be right. Who of us would say, no? It draws us into intimacy. Marriages that rock, say, I'm sorry. If you're married, do you need to go home? Seriously, do you need to go home today and say, you know what? I got some apologies I got to make. I'm a mess. This is how I'm failing you. This is what I did. This is something I'm carrying along. This is something I haven't said I'm sorry for. And tell them you need them to embrace you. And tell them you're sorry. Marriages that rock say I'm sorry. Two, marriages that rock speak one another's love language. Marriages that rock speak one another's love language. Do you know this concept? This is a book by Gary Chapman that was introduced in the 80s. And he um, wrote this book saying, you know, basically human beings are able to receive love in really just one of a handful of ways. I mean, most people fall into these pretty simple categories that you receive, like you primarily receive love in one of just a handful of ways. You might primarily receive love through, through physical touch or you might primarily receive love through acts of service or words of affirmation or quality time that you spend with someone. You, you, there's just a few ways that you probably best understand that somebody loves you when they speak that language. And, he, and I think he even goes on to use the idea of, he goes, it's like Chinese. Like if you don't speak Chinese and somebody says all kinds of meaningful and beautiful and powerful things to you in Chinese, it, they might as well not speak at all. Am I right? Is that Chinese? I don't even know. I just found it on the internet. It could be like something really nasty in a weird language. <laughs> but we don't know because we don't speak that language. And that's the point. I'm learning Italian. It's just this little fun thing I'm doing on the side. I'm just learning a little bit of Italian. And you realize when you start to learn a language like that, you think, all right, I'm learning some stuff. And then you come to find out all I know how to say is, it's cloudy today. <laughs> a nuvoloso OG, you know, like that's it. So I'm going to go to Italy because I love them and I love their culture and I love, and I'm going to go. And that's what I'm going to say. That's my big offering to the Italians. It's cloudy today. That's what I understand. It's ridiculous. I'm not going to learn the heart language. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to be able to communicate. Think about how much work it is to actually learn to speak another language so that their heart can hear you. That's what love languages are. So we naturally speak our own love language. My love language is physical touch. Now, I know a lot of guys think their love language is physical touch. Many of ours are. But that means if you touch me, you're telling me you love me, I feel it. You can do all kinds of other things with me. You can spend time with me all day long. I'm like, that's nice. You're a good friend. But there's something about physical touch that says you love me, you care about me. And um, Art touches me. It's not as good as when Linda touches me, but it still feels <laughs> like I'm loved. So when I go to love somebody, have you noticed I'm a toucher? I touch you. I hug you. I kiss people. I kiss men. I'm just comfortable with it because I'm loving you. I'm speaking my language, though. For me to love my wife, I have to speak her language. Because physical touch is Chinese. She says, oh, that's okay. I get it. I can see the tone in it. I'm sort of understanding it. But that's not my love language. My wife's like, go to Costco with me. <laughs> because hers is acts of service. Because an acts of service in her world says, you see me, you see the things on my plate, you see the burdens that I carry. And when you step in and carry part of them, you're saying, I value you and know you and love you. And now I'm with you in your journey, in your life. So we go to Costco. Some of you are parsing your own. You're like, that's what's going on. <laughs> so 
Marriages that rock speak one another's love language. We have to get out of the way that we would speak. We get out of the way that we would receive and we actually give to our spouse in a way that they can understand it. Why would that be so powerful? Why would that bring such stability to marriage? Because we're recognizing that God has uniquely, creatively made them exactly who he wants them to be. And then we get to step into that and recognize it and understand it. It's awesome. And we get to speak very, very intentionally into their life. Speak one another's love language. I hope that you, anybody, has you, anybody not read that book said, oh, I'd love to read that book. Anybody would love to read that? Right there, that's it. Come run up here and get this. You gotta come all the way up. Bless you here, Art. Give that to her on the way out. That'd be great. That is a great book. Enjoy that. I think you should go get it. You should think about your love language. You can have the conversation. If you're married, have the conversation. Hey, what do you think my love, lang- my love language is? How is it that you most receive love? Okay. Marriages that rock speak one another's love language and think about the selflessness that's required to learn to speak an entirely different language for somebody else's benefit. Third, marriages that rock date. Marriages that rock date. They still date. I know it's a little bit trite to talk about like date night or whatever, and you hear people say that, and, um, but it's actually really a powerful reality. There's a study that was conducted by the University of Virginia in 2012, and they, they, looked at, uh, they, they looked at 1,600 married couples. And then in the report, they also did this review of all of the social science literature uh, on dating and this quality date night experience for married couples. And they suggest that it fosters strong marriages. And they say, and you know, we can go and go, well, I guess I sort of would understand that. But they actually parse out why it is that it strengthens marriage that couples who are married still go out on dates. They have a date night experience. And there's five, five reasons. One is communication. They say it fosters communication because in your married life, there's all kinds of things that get in the way of communication. And the study actually lists like children and work. You're like, wow, your tax money probably funded the research there. Your children get in the way of good communication. Did you know that? That's rocket science. So... Children get in the way of communication and work responsibilities get in the way. And so a date night creates an opportunity for couples to go out and share dreams and get current with one another. And that fosters strength. And you could see that, right? You could see what, how, why that would help marriage rock, that you actually get current with each other. Have you had this experience, guys? That you're at a dinner party, you're at a, uh, somewhere, and your wife starts saying things about something that she's learning or doing or whatever, and you're realizing, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> I should have known that. How did I not know that? You, what? You've learned Italian? Like, when did that happen, right? Because we're not keeping current with one another. So communication is one, is one reason that, that, uh, that dating helps strengthen marriages. The other one they said, another one they said was Novelty. Novelty. Couples, listen to this, most couples experience a decline in relationship quality after a few years, partly because they have been habituated to one another. That's science speak for we are boring now. We're so boring. I'm boring myself. And so there's this novelty piece that when couples go out and do things together, that there is a newness to it and they learn uh, one another's experience, learn more of one another in that experience and how the other person is experiencing that newness thing. And of course, it went on to say in very scientific, um, stark terms that if that's going to happen, your date night shouldn't consist of the same opportunities 
like the old standby of dinner and a movie. So spice it up a bit. But novelty helps uh, strengthen our marriages. One of the other ones that uh, dating does is it's, it's, it's the, the area of, it's called eros, and this is about romantic love that has, has uh, brought connections. With time, and emotion, with time, the emotional and physical manifestations of erotic love tend to decline in most couples. <laughs> Nobody over 40 saying amen out loud, but I'd heard it in your spirit. The study talks about how dating simply allows couples to focus on their relationship, share feelings, and engage in romantic opportunities with one another. And then this line, and to try new things. Not sure where that's going. Date nights may strengthen or rekindle the romantic spark. So there's this idea of coming together and having an experience, a romantic experience. That's why I put this slide up there. Because, you know, they got their mommy, their mommy and daddy juice right there. And they're having their little romantic experience away from the kids and they're creating a romantic moment just the way they did when they were all creative early on and tricking the person into loving you. <laughs> anyway, there's two more that strength, the reasons why dating strengthens and one of them is commitment that there's a sense, people who have a strong sense that someone's committed to the relationship strengthens the satisfaction and the stability of the relationship if you know they're committed. And dating says, I'm committed to you. It's our night. I'm sacrificing. Here I am. Wait, the warriors are on? Okay, uh, calm down. There's a DVR. We're going anyway. <laughs> and we're going to go hang out together. And it says to everybody around them, there's a, they, they talk about this powerful public um, effect um, that it has on your marriage publicly, that if you're public about I'm committed to my spouse, to your children. I'm committed. You are, get behind her in line of my priorities. That kind of thing. It tells you, your friends, the world, and your spouse, I'm, you're, I'm committed to you. That strengthens marital satisfaction and stability. Isn't that powerful? So just being on a date, just, just doing what you say you're gonna do. Hey, we're gonna go Wednesday night. It's our night. And the last one was, there's a de-stress component to dating. Stress is one of the biggest threats to strong marriage relationships. Duh. And it, it basically a date night is like a, it's like a, 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 a vacation once a week where you get away from it all together and you just live into the joy of the moment, which is awesome, which is why you shouldn't have your phone on the table during your dates. Anyway, can you understand why marriage is that rock date that there's this bringing together? Do you date? Do you set aside that time if you're married to date? It's a fantastic investment in your marriage. Marriages that rock, four, guard their hearts. Marriages that rock, guard their hearts. There's a verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 4.23, that says this. Above all else. Now, when a scripture starts with, above all else. You want to pay attention, right? Above all else, Proverbs 4.23 starts. Guard your heart. For it is the wellspring of life. Above all else, guard your heart. Another paraphrase may say, above all else, guard your heart for all of your life will flow from it. So make sure that your heart is invested, that your heart is present for the things that you want your life to be about. Jesus said it also in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Translate that. 
where you invest, what you put your time, energy, resources into, your heart is going to follow that. Marriages that rock invest themselves, invest their hearts in the relationship because there is a plethora of opportunities for your heart to be removed from that marriage. There are a million things that can steal your heart. Unfaithfulness just being one of them. But we're unfaithful. We give our hearts away willingly to all kinds of things that take away from that relationship, investing our heart in that relationship. We give our hearts to all kinds of stuff. I mean, one of the most common ones is we give our hearts to our kids and they become our little idols running around our house and our little gods in our house that we worship and bow down to. And not only is our wife or our husband not our first priority, it's, I mean, everything is about the kids and they steal our hearts. I love you, Anna. You don't have my heart first. On this side of heaven, I mean, there's me and God, but man, it's, it's your mom. We've always told our kids that. Sometimes we just say, we don't like you, but that's, that was wrong. <laughs> that was wrong. It was just more like, you know, in a moment, but we guard our hearts. We invest our hearts in relations. There's all kinds of things that, would, that we give our hearts to that will steal our hearts. If it's not our kids, it's our work, it's our money, it's our, it's our worries about money. And so the thing that keeps us on the treadmill going, what is it? it can, it's just hobbies. It's hobbies because marriage is hard and hobbies are easy. And so some of you guys that love golf, I get it because I love riding and I love running and I love baseball. Like I get it. I love hobbies. They're good for you. But when you're hiding from your marriage because of them, then they're an idol, right? They've stolen our hearts. We've given our heart away to it. But, Will we invest our resources into that relationship? We'll guard our hearts. One of, the, one of the details in this study that I read said that couples who steer clear of romantic encounters, other romantic encounters, were by far stronger and more satisfied in their marriage. This is basically a secular study from a university saying, hey, you want to be have a stronger marriage and a more satisfied marriage, then you need to steer clear of your romantic attachments, whether that's an ideal, whether that's another woman, whether that's something that's taken your heart, you gotta steer clear of it. You give your heart away, you only have so much heart. Will we invest our hearts in our spouse? How do you invest your heart in your spouse? It's about prioritizing resources, living into it. I don't, we don't even need to, one of, the, one, of the, one of the heart stealers is pornography. We don't even need to go down that road. I mean, I actually printed out an abstract from one of the research studies on pornography and I thought, oh, well, this will be instructive and I read it and I said, it's not instructive. We totally know that. You know, statistics will tell us that there's tons of men and women in this room that are struggling down that road that have given our heart away to pornography. Data from over 20,000 married adults Examine the relationship between watching pornography and marital strength and well-being. And we found that adults who watched an X-rated movie in the past year were more likely to be divorced, more likely to have an extramarital affair, less likely to report being happy, and less likely to be report being happy with their marriage specifically. We found also that for men, pornography use reduced the positive relationship between frequency of sex and happiness. And finally, we found that the negative relationship between pornography use and marital well-being has grown stronger over time. We don't have to even talk about it. 
but it's just one example of the way that we hide rather than investing ourselves into a richness of intimacy and developing and friendship and love and sacrifice. We give our hearts to other things. And the cost is so great when we give our hearts away. And, and men and women, if, if you're using pornography, it's, a, it's, it's so not worth it. Because it takes your heart away from your marital satisfaction, your sexual satisfaction, the intimacy that you can have, the stability of your marriage, the protection from extramarital affairs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just the research is there. So if you're using pornography, you stop. It's not worth it. And if you can't stop, then admit you can't stop and get some help. Because if you can't stop, that's a problem, right? You really know it's become something way bigger than it should be. There's so many things for us to give our hearts away to and that steal our hearts. We give our hearts to something thinking, well, I'm just going to give my heart to this because this isn't a matter. I'm whatever. I'm going to give my heart to this and then we can't get it back. It's not worth it. Marriages that rock, guard their hearts. Would you be attentive to guarding your heart? Putting your treasure there and walking away from anything else that would tempt you from that. Okay, I gotta finish. Five, marriage that rocks don't keep a record. Marriages that rock don't keep a record of wrongs. In fact, the opposite is true. Marriages that rock don't keep a record of wrongs. That verse is right out of, um, of um, 1 Corinthians 13. It's like the marriage little love passage that's in your Bible. A lot of you had it read at your marriage, at your wedding. Do you remember that? No, because you were like, ah. But there's some really intense stuff in that passage about what love is. And one of the things that it says is it does not keep a record of wrongs. And we know what that means. That means hold on to those things that they've done. And all that does to us, it's so dangerous because it builds resentment and it builds dissatisfaction. And then it's some really heavy baggage, a ball and chain that we drag further into the next encounter and the next encounter. We're always at a disadvantage because we're carrying all of this resentment and all of this, this record of wrongs, this Marriages that rock don't keep a record of wrongs. Well, what do we say about that? Of course not. What we say is, let's do the opposite. Marriages that rock do the opposite. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, 1850, she wrote, how do I love thee? Do you remember the next line? Let me count the ways. Let me count the ways that I love you. Let me number the things that are amazing about you that I love. Let me tell you what those things are so that you know that that's what it is that I care about. It is a simple act of psychology that if we focus on the positive, we will be positive and stronger. And by the way, what benefit will our spouse get out of us counting their rights, counting the things that we love about them? You guys, we are called as spouses to list and remind and celebrate and convince the other person that we know just how glorious they are. You are made by God with these gifts and these beautiful things and I see it and love it and understand it. This is what I love about you. Greg does this all the time behind his wife's back. He always says, while we're talking about something, he'll say, oh, this is what I love about my wife. Come on, man, are you talking like that about your wife behind her back? Women, are you talking about your husbands like that behind their back? We think that we were called into our relationship because it was going to make us happy. God has blessed me. And so I have this marriage because he wants me to be happy. You know what? That's not it. You were given this story by God, 
this marriage relationship that you're in, you were given that story not to because so that she can make you happy or he can make you happy. You were given that story by God so that you could help them fulfill the destiny and the beauty that they are. That's your job to help them be God's woman, God's man. That's what you get to do. And there's sacrifice and death and pain and learning new languages all in that. And you're like, well, that's not very fun. I know. <laughs> Nobody said it was going to be fun. The scriptures say you love your husband, you love your wife. How? Like Christ loved the church. And how is that? He gave himself up for her. Greg wrote a book about how there is life in death. When we die to ourselves, God will bring life. And your greatest happiness, your greatest joy will not be because your wife is loving you so much, men. It's because you've laid down your life and loved her. And you will find joy and marital strength and satisfaction in that in, like you will in no other way. Marriages that rock keep a record of what's right and talk about it and press into it and live into it. That's why we were called to be married. Last. Marriages that rock know they need God's help. Marriages that rock know that they need God's help. And, and I don't mean sort of the, there's sort of a power in the universe and the big man upstairs or the guy up there is sort of blessing me. I'm talking about the presence of a living God. And if he doesn't come through, I'm not strong enough to do this. Marriages at Rock know that they need a living God's help. You could almost say that that's like the chief cornerstone in the deal. It's the thing that all of it is trued up to. That God would be for real and his higher power and his rescue and his help in unsticking us and his healing and his leading and his wisdom that all of that would actually come to bear on us. And some of you know intimately your need for that God's intervention. You know that. You're feeling it right now. You've known it somewhere, some season of life. You're feeling it now. Some of you have known the heartbreak of a broken marriage and you knew how desperate you were for God's. You were beyond your ability. Marriages that rock know that they need God's help. And so, friends, they cry out to him. If you're not married, you cry out to God for the wisdom and the leading about whether you're going to be married or whether you're going to be married to the right person. If you are married, you know in the middle of it you do not have what it takes. And if, again, if you've known the heartbreak of a broken marriage, you know how dependent we are on God's strength. The beautiful hope is that God promises his, his presence. There's a passage in the Old Testament in um, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. And God, the, the, the stuff that leads up to that passage is God saying, you know, a bunch of stuff's going to happen in your life. There's going to be all kinds of difficult things that are going to come against you as my people. He said, then, if my people who are called by my name, I mean, if you're my, if you're my man, if you're my woman, if my people who are called by my name stop and pray, seek my face, turn from their stubborn mistakes, 
I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive them and I will heal them. This is a promise from God. And we, friends, going toward marriage, coming out of marriage or being in marriage, we are dependent on the grace and the leading and the power and the rescue of my God. And marriages at rock know they need God's help and so we cry out to him. That's what it looks like. We cry out to him. Oh God, I can't solve this. I can't fix this. I cannot be the man that I know you need me to be. I can't be that guy consistently. I'm falling short. And so we say, I'm sorry to our spouse. And we beg God to meet us and come through. You may have heard me say this many times in many other contexts. But as you're struggling in marriage, even if you're at the worst point you've had, hey, go get some help. Go get a counselor. We love counseling. We love counseling. There's no scarlet letter about counseling. If you're getting counseling, you should be bragging about it. We're working on our marriage. We'll be high-fiving you all day long. But B, are you crying out to the God who can rescue you? I mean, the real God who can show up and meet you, even when you don't even know what you're asking for. The flame is gone. The heart is broken. The confusion is there. Whatever it is, that you cry out to God for his intervention and his rescue and his wisdom and his leading and his healing. This is what I've said to you before. I want you to hear it again from me. You crawl out of bed and you hit the floor on your knees side by side for 100 days and beg God to show up in your marriage. I have literally never met a couple that didn't get on their knees together and beg God for healing of their relationship where God hasn't come through. Most of the time, frankly, we just get exhausted and wounded way before 100 days happens and we get taken out of the game. I understand that. This marriage thing is an insane proposal. But if we set our hearts on the God that can give us the strength to make it rock, he'll come through, even in our worst times.